0: All right, good morning. If you have your Bibles, please open with me to Romans 15. Romans 15. We'll start on verse 14. And Paul writes... And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, I, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Amen.
1: grateful for the opportunities that I've had to grow here as uh, a minister of God's Word. I was t- telling Mark a few weeks ago that I'm just thankful for the opportunities that he gave to, get, to allow me to make mistakes. Um, I remember when I was just, a, I was in college, and a recent convert, only been saved maybe a couple years, started a Bible study at my house, and, and Mark gave me the opportunity just to turn that Bible study into Crossways College Bible Study, kind of like Good News, much smaller. And I remember, like I can think back to how I was teaching back then, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and I'm just thankful for the opportunity to have that, just to get that experience, to teach God's word um, to people my age, to my peers, um, for Mark to even come and sit in and the Bible study, hear my teaching, and to just encourage me and give me opportunities to grow. And so I'm grateful for a church that does that. Um, this is a special place, guys. This is a very special place. We've been to a lot of churches over the last year. And this is a, this is a very special church. So um, it's not perfect. It's not perfect at all. Um, but whenever you guys get tempted to think there's, the grass is greener, I'm telling you guys, the grass is as green as it gets right here. Okay? So praise the Lord for that. We're going to be in Romans chapter 15. For those of you that don't know, we actually did purchase our tickets to go to Southeast Asia, so praise the Lord for that. We put a deposit down on a house that we're going to be leasing there as well, so plans are going along. They're coming along very well. So we leave June 7th. So June 7th, we plan to go to Southeast Asia. We have the goal of seeing a church planted amongst a people in a language that has never received the gospel of the Lord Jesus. This is something that as a couple we've been preparing for for the past seven years. It's not something that we just uh, decided on last year, last month. It's something that we've been working towards as a couple for the past seven years. People always ask us, well, how long do you plan to be on? Well, if we have been preparing for seven years, then it's probably going to be a little bit longer than a few years, right? The answer is pretty easy or pretty simple um, until we see a church planted amongst a language that's never received the Jesus, never had a church, or until Jesus comes back. So that's, a, that's about as long as we're going to be there. And then the next question is, well, how long do you think that will take? And then we usually say about 20-ish years. That's our commitment because that's what we've seen um, through experience and through other people's experience. That's how long it takes to do this kind of work. Now, why would it take 20-plus years to do this kind of a task? That seems like a long time, doesn't it? Why would it take that long? We're seeing churches planted, you know, every, you know in America, it takes maybe a couple years to plant a church, right? You really could do it in a year, but to see it come to a, a healthy place, maybe a, two to three years, right? We're even planning as Crossway to plant a couple churches in the next several years. So why does it take 20 years? Maybe, maybe you've heard of people going overseas and planting several churches in a weekend. I don't know if you guys have heard that. That's actually, those are real claims that are being thrown around overseas. Big deal in the Southern Baptist Convention right now. Several churches in one weekend. So why is it gonna take you guys 20 years? Three big barriers of why it's gonna take us a long time. First, the people that we're talking about, they don't speak a majority language as their primary language. Here's what I mean. They don't speak English. They don't speak Arabic, they don't speak Mandarin, Vietnamese, Hindi, Spanish, or Swahili as their primary language. They speak one of the other thousands of languages that exist in the world today as their heart language. So when they're in their homes, when they're talking about things that are important, when they're talking about spiritual things, when you're speaking to someone from the heart, you're not gonna be using any of these majority languages. You have to use their mother tongue to really communicate to them at the heart level. So That's one big barrier. That means you're going to have to learn not just one language, the, larger, the majority language. You're going to have to learn two languages, one language to get into the country, the second language to gain access to the people's hearts. Does that make sense? Second, these people often lived in what we call closed countries or what missiologists often call creative access nations. This means that you can't just show up to the country and say, hey, I'd like to be a missionary in your country. It's illegal. So if you do that, they'll never let you in. If they find out that you're that word, then they'll kick you out. So actually, we're pretty, um, I'm averse to using that word. I will usually say the, the M, I will say an M or a worker. Missionary is kind of like a curse word to us now. We just don't use that word because that, that word will get you um, kicked out of countries. We actually even heard of people within the country that, um, that we're going to. They've received an email from someone who meant well, and in the subject line, it said, how's our missionary doing? Within 48 hours, kicked out of that country. So that means in order to gain access to these people, we have to go in by some other creative means. We can't just go in by using that identity. So we've decided to use business as that way to gain access to the people, to, bridge, bridge, uh, to make a bridge, to build bridges for the gospel. That takes time to establish a business and to maintain it, um, and then also to do all of the other things that go into seeing a church planted in that people group. Third, we want to plant a church that lasts We wanna plant a church that lasts. We're not just going to share the gospel. We're going to share the gospel and to train people so that the gospel can be alive in a community for decades, for centuries even, that's our prayer. So there's a couple things that need to happen in order for that to, to take place. We believe that for a church to have a chance at lasting, just a chance, they need qualified indigenous leaders and the word of God in their language. Indigenous means that they're from that people group. They're from them, not an outsider coming in, but someone that's from among them. They need qualified leaders to lead that church, and they need the word of God in their language. If you don't have both of these things, then the people will always be dependent on outsiders coming in. And we don't want them to be dependent on outsiders. We want them to be self-sufficient in themselves. So if the people don't have a written language, then what do they need? They need a written language. I mean, someone's got to go in, learn their language, reduce it to writing, and then teach them how to read and write their own language, just so they can be able to read and write um, and to learn from God's word on their own. If they don't have a translation, then what do they need? They need a translation. And if if you think about how long it takes to raise up elders in an American church situation, think about Crossway. Think about someone who becomes a new believer at Crossway. How long do you think it'll take them to go from becoming a new believer to being ready to be an elder at the church. Years, years, and that's in America. That's in English. That's in a place where that person probably already had an understanding of the gospel before they really turned to Christ, repentance and faith. So now imagine what that's going to look like in a place where there's no gospel foundation, no church culture. I mean, we're in the Bible belt of, of California here. Um, It's significantly different there. It's going to take time. It's going to take patience. It's going to take the Lord doing a lot of work, a lot of work. So is it clear that it's going to take a long time? Okay. It's kind of daunting, honestly, thinking about this. Um, From a human perspective, I'm like, man, how is this going to happen? It's just you have to trust the Lord that he's going to do it, that he's going to get this work done. So once we've established that this is going to take a long time, sometimes like we get a response, a question. So, so why not just plant a church here? If you're going to spend 20 years to plant one church, maybe two, then why not just plant a church where it's a little bit easier, a little bit faster? Why not do it in East Bakersfield? Why not go to Dearborn, Michigan, where we lived for a number of years? Our, neighbors, our neighborhood, guys, in East Dearborn, Michigan, is 99% Muslim. Arabic is the common language in East Dearborn. Why not go there and plant a church amongst then, why not go to Hamtramck? It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a small enclave within Detroit that where a lot of Bengali and Yemeni and, and other immigrants, they come and they settle there. And again, all the signs are in Arabic. Why not go there and plant a church there? Why not go to a, a majority language group and just learn you know, one language and then plant a church in that language, like Arabic or Mandarin or Vietnamese or Hindi? Why not do any of these things? Doesn't that seem like you can make more use of your time on this earth. And so I want to I want to share with you guys three factors, three motivations that push us to do what we're planning on going to do. Whenever we have doubt about what we're doing, we go back to these things. The glory of God, the great commission strategy, <clears throat> and gospel urgency. The glory of God, great commission strategy, and gospel urgency. So this morning, I want to give a, a biblical justification for the work we're leaving to do, to plant churches amongst a people group like this. And, and the reason why I want to do this is not just so that you simply feel better about what we're doing, so that you guys agree that we're not wasting our time. No, I, I want to do this first and foremost in hopes that some of you would make it your ambition to take the gospel where it's never been, that over the next few years, there would be several of you, couples without kids, families with kids, singles, who would pursue the training necessary. Maybe it's theological. Maybe you go down to Radius and get trained, <clears throat> like we did, to take the gospel to the furthest reaches of the earth. But if that's not you, then I want to give the biblical foundation so that you would consider how you can play a role in seeing the nations reached with the gospel. It's been my prayer. It's always been my prayer for the last eight years as we've been thinking about this. That this, that that missions to the unreached, that church planting amongst unreached people groups would become a part of the heartbeat and DNA of Crossway Baptist Church. Not just something that a few people care about, and we're supportive of those few people, but one of the reasons we exist, because it's one of the reasons the church as a whole exists, from Matthew 28. So three reasons why. The glory of God great commission strategy and gospel urgencies and urgency and we're getting that from Paul's description of his own ministry in Romans 15. So if you're not there yet, Romans chapter 15. <clears throat> now, as many of you know, Romans is the the theological crown jewel of scripture. It is the closest thing in scripture that we get to a systematic theology. In the book of Romans, you get a lot of rich doctrine, don't we? In in Romans alone, we get the doctrine of natural revelation, justification, adoption, sanctification, predestination and election, and even eschatology, all in the book of Romans. But Romans is not just a theological treatise. It's also functionally at, at, at the very base of why it was written, functionally. It's a missionary support letter, and I realized that the text that we read this morning uh, before I came up here, <clears throat> it didn't really end like on a really complete thought, right? But um, I had him read it because I wanted to make this point. Look at verse 24 in, in chapter 15. So this is a missionary support letter. Verse 24, I hope to see you in passing as I go to where? Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you. Once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So Paul writes this letter to Rome, yes, to encourage them and to teach them, but he's also writing to them because he wants, to go to, he wants them to partner with him in the gospel as he goes to Spain. And in chapter 15, he's going to give the reason why he's going to a place like Spain that doesn't have the gospel yet. And that's what we're going to look at in our text. <clears throat> so the first point I want us to look at this morning and think about is that God is glorified when new peoples come to know him. God is glorified when new peoples come to know him. Look at verse 15. Let's read that together. Actually, I'll back up to verse 14 for context. Paul says this. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So he starts off this section by just commending the Church of Rome. You guys are, you guys are doing a good job. You guys are a good church. I've written to you very boldly on some, by some reminder of, of truths about the gospel, but I want you to know that you're doing things well. I want to commend you. Then he goes in to describe his ministry, and that's what I really want to focus on here. Look at how Paul describes his ministry. And I want us to see that he, first and foremost, God is glorified in his ministry to unreached peoples, to peoples that have never received the gospel, first and foremost because he does his ministry for God. God is glorified when we do ministry for him. Look at how he describes it. Verse 15. Because of the grace given me by God to be a minister, of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. Stop there. He describes himself as a minister of Christ Jesus and he describes his work as a priestly service. The word minister that he uses there is actually a very interesting word. It's the word liturgos in Greek. That's where we get the word liturgy from. Now where else do we hear the word liturgy? In church. And when you think about liturgy, you need to be thinking about an order of service, an order of worship. The sacrifices in the Old Testament could be described as a liturgy. There's an order to the sacrifices. It was a liturgy. So Paul's using this word here. It's it's often translated as minister or servant, but it's a very religious word. It's a picture of someone who does a liturgy, who has this religious order of service. And then he says, he describes his work as a priestly service. Now, what do priests do? Now, if you're you're in the, the Leviticus class, please don't get this wrong. What do priests do? They offer sacrifices. They mediate the relationship between God and man, and in the Old Testament, by offering sacrifices on their behalf. Now, who is, so what is Paul's offering here? This is kind of a surprising point here. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, In the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He wants us to view his ministry in terms of a sacrificial service. So when he goes out, he views himself as a priest. He views the Gentiles, these people from other nations that are not Jews, as his offering unto God. This is his offering. He wants them to be presented to God, acceptable, sanctified, set apart by the Holy Spirit. And so first and foremost, he does all of his work for God. This is a worship activity. Now, this is true of all, this is true of all ministry, not just this kind of ministry. We should all view our work as worship. We should all view our ministry as offerings to God. But here specifically, Paul is bringing to God Gentiles. Now, that word Gentiles here is really the word ethnos or ethne. It's where we get the word ethnicity from. It's the same word that's translated as nations in Matthew 28, the exact same word. In Matthew 28, all nations, make disciples of all nations, Pantata ethne. Here, it's using the same word, but it's translated as Gentiles. Here's, the, here's Paul's point here, though, is that these are people that are not Jews. He just got done talking in Romans 14 about relations between Jews and Gentiles within the church and how they should be to behave with one another. But these are nations. These are people. So what, is it, what does it mean? What is a nation? What is a nation? Um, in, America, in, a, in, in, in today's world, we talk about lots of nations. When we talk about nations, we're talking about geopolitical nation states, right? Like the United States is a nation. Ukraine is a nation. China is a... Now, did all of those countries exist back then? No, but he still talks about nations. And the Bible talks about nations in terms of more of like cultural and linguistic identities. So a group that speaks the same language, has the same culture, has the same history, maybe lives in the same place, this would be called a nation. And so Paul's going to all these different peoples and he's offering them up to God in his priestly duty. So first, God is glorified when when we do ministry for God, because our ministry is for God. Secondly, God is glorified because Paul recognizes that the work that he does and the work that we all do is accomplished by God. Look at verse 17. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Let's just stop there. Paul says that he's proud of his work. Is it should we be proud? Doesn't that ring kind of weird to you? Like, I remember, I, remember uh, I, I like Christian hip-hop. I joke that I, I listen to hip-hop and hymns. And, and there's a group called Beautiful Eulogy. That's one of my favorite um, groups. And they're signed to a label that's called Humble Beast. And it's a little confusing, right? Like, are you humble or are you a beast? And they have T-shirts, and I have one. This humble beast on it. And I, when I wear it, I'm a, little confl- I'm a little conflicted. Am I telling people I'm a beast or am I telling them that I'm humble? In our culture, we could tend to think that humility means that we never boast about anything. That humility means that we strip ourselves of everything and we can begin to think that this is humility, that we say things like this. We totally self-deprecate like this. I have nothing to offer the church. I'm not gifted. I'm not growing in righteousness, I'm unusable. And we can think that statements like that are actually humble. And there's nothing we can boast about at all. This is called total self-deprecation. You belittle yourselves. But in belittling ourselves to this point, we actually end up belittling what God can and will do through you. That when we totally self-deprecate like this, then we're saying that God can't use me. That God is not growing me in righteousness. That God is not, that, that I don't have anything to offer the church because God hasn't gifted me. That's what we're saying by implication. The tricky thing is that these statements, there are, there's some truth to these things, right? Like, you in and of yourself, you do have nothing to offer, offer the church. You in and of yourself. You in and of yourself, you wouldn't grow in righteousness. You wouldn't be usable. But that's why Paul says it the way he does in verse 17. Look at what he says here. In Christ Jesus, then, because in Christ Jesus, you are a new creation. You are gifted for ministry. You are usable as an instrument for him. So in Christ Jesus, then, verse 17, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. So we don't want to be totally self-deprecating. And then we also don't want to have, like, a fake humility um, either. We don't want to have this fake humility that comes out like humble brags either, right? You guys know what humble brag is? Like me walking off the stage after um, preaching, <clears throat> someone comes up to me and we're talking, and I say, man, I just wish I would have preached better that day, knowing very well that was the best sermon I've ever preached in my life. What am I looking for there? I'm looking for attention. I'm looking for affirmation, human affirmation. Both are prideful. Both rob God of glory because both draw attention on ourselves. Paul here recognizes that it's God who is working, and its work is done in Christ Jesus, Look at how he continues to describe his work in verse 18. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what, who? Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. By word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. So he's, he's, he's recognizing that. He's doing these things, right? Whose word was being preached? Who was preaching the word? Paul. Who was living out the deeds? Paul. Who was doing the signs and wonders? Paul was. Through the power of God, through the power of the Spirit of God. So we need to recognize that, yes, God gives us gifts. We need to use them as instruments for him. And as we do that, it's God who accomplishes this work. Our only hope for seeing a church planted in the future is if God does it. Our only hope for seeing our kids come to Christ is if God does it. Our only hope for any ministry success is if God accomplishes this work. So Paul isn't sinfully proud here. He's humbly proud. He's a humble beast because he knows that the success of his ministry is because of God's work. So God's glorified in Paul's frontier ministry because it's actually accomplished by God. So it's for God. It's by God. Again, this is true of all Christian ministry, but in the case of Frontier Missions, I want us to just highlight this for a second. God deserves glory from every people on the earth, correct? When, he, when, a God, when the gospel goes to a new place, to a new nation, God is going to be glorified in a new place in a new language, this is the unique privilege of going to unreached peoples. This is, this is one of the differences. This is a unique privilege of going to a people that's never received the gospel before, that's never heard it before. Some of you guys have heard me share this story. It's, not, it's partly my story, it's partly someone else's story. But back in 2013, I took a class. This is how I was first introduced to, to missions. I took a class called Perspectives. It's it basically a 15-week class on how to be a world Christian. And the last week of that class, a guy named Brad Buser came in and he shared his testimony about how he went from being a pothead surfer in San Diego to traveling across the world to Papua New Guinea to see a church planted in a people group that's never received it before. So he talked about how <clears throat> he talked about excuse me, how he moved into Papua New Guinea, how he and his wife had to learn two languages, how they did translation work and after years and years of labor, I think it was like seven years, they were finally able to share the gospel with the Atenis, the Ateni tribe. And I remember, Brad, I remember Brad sharing about how they got to, when they got done acting out the death of Jesus, they would act out all the stories of the gospel, actually from creation to Christ. And when they got done acting out the death of Jesus, <clears throat> he and their teammates asked the crowd if anyone understood what Jesus had done. And then they sat down and they just waited. They just waited to see if they, how they would respond. And after some time, one man stands up and he just starts to cry out to God. He says essentially this, oh God, you are my father. I've sinned against you, but Jesus died in my place and now I'm I'm in your family. And after him, more and more people just stood up and started to praise God and started to sing to him, calling him father. This is something that's never happened in that people group up to this point. Thousands of years Thousands of years living in darkness, and and then the light of the gospel permeates this people group just by him preaching the gospel clearly to them. This is a unique privilege. This is a unique privilege that you only get to experience if you go to an unreached people group. This is the unique um, privilege that we are hoping to experience at some point in our lives. Second, the Great Commission is accomplished strategically through Frontier Missions, The Great Commission is accomplished strategically through Frontier Missions. Look at how Paul describes the breadth or the the scope of his ministry in verse 19, the second part of verse 19. So he says that, through the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Skip ahead a little bit to to verse 23. But now, since I no longer have any work, any room for work in these regions. So this is a pretty audacious claim, isn't it? Paul says that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, he's fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Okay, we might not understand what he's saying there, how significant this is. That's about 1,000 miles, Jerusalem to Illyricum. I mapped this out. It's, about like, it's like going from Bakersfield to Seattle. Now, could you imagine if Mark said, Pastor Mark, if he said that, hey, guys, I've gone from Bakersfield to Seattle, <clears throat> all done. All done. No more work for me here. We'd be like, okay, Mark, you're a good preacher, but you're not that good. So what are you trying to tell us right here, right? Does Paul mean that every single person in all these regions believe the gospel? I don't think so. In Second Thessalonians, Paul says that not all have, not all have faith. 2 Thessalonians 3.2. So Paul recognizes that even in Thessalonica, where there is a church, not all have faith. So does this mean that each city that Paul visited along the way was saturated with gospel-preaching churches? If you guys read through the book, through the book of Acts, did Paul stay in any one place for a very long time? No, he moved on quickly, mainly because he was being kicked out of all these places. But he wasn't able to stay there long enough to see those cities become saturated with the gospel churches, gospel-preaching churches. So he doesn't mean that. Here's what I think. I think Paul is revealing a strategy. His strategy for how to, how, to, how to accomplish the Great Commission. His particular role and strategy. So here's what he did if you read the book of Acts. He went to strategic locations, cities, where there was often a center of commerce. There was a synagogue even. He would go and preach. And then once a church was planted, then he would leave it to the church to reach the surrounding region. It was their responsibility. He might even send like a Timothy or a Titus to go, to, go uh, to these people groups to train the churches to raise up elders so that they can be sustained on their own, right? But that wasn't his role. His role was to go and get things started, and he'd move on. And he was going to strategic locations, so that way from, from Jerusalem to Illyricum, there would be a church represented, and he would go... He would plan on where to go based on where the church couldn't reach. And that's why Paul, to the Romans, he's saying, look, I I love you guys. I want to go visit you guys. I'm going to pass through you on the way to Spain, and I want you to partner with me as I go there. So he's leapfrogging Rome in order to get to Spain because he has this specific strategy that he's attacking here in his ministry. Excuse me, in his ministry. In 1 Thessalonians 1.8, we see a little bit of a picture of this. Just listen to how Paul describes their ministry. He commends them for this. He says, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. So Paul is strategically planning a church and he recognizes that this is not for everybody. Look at the next statement that he makes in verse 20. He says, and thus I make it my ambition, my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Are there other good ambitions? Yes. If everyone at Crossway went, there'd be no crossway. But Paul makes it his ambition to use his life strategically for the accomplishment of the, of the Great Commission. One of the things that, you know, people ask me, like, why, how did you start to think about why? Like, how, do you, how did you start making the decision that you wanted to go and one of the things that I thought about was, well, yes, there are people that are dying. We're going to get to that in a, in a second. People are dying without the gospel. But another, another thing just simply is that no one's going. Very few people are going to these people, these types of people groups. Very few. Here's some statistics. One in 1,800 Christians end up serving overseas in a cross-cultural context in missions. That's that, that about 400,000 missionaries worldwide, 400,000. <clears> 72% of these missionaries go to places where the gospel has a strong presence, 72%. Um, places like Mexico, um, places like Brazil. There, there, are, there are strong churches in Mexico and in, and in Brazil, 72%. 25% go to places where people have access to the gospel but have rejected Christ. places like Germany or Spain, heavily Catholic areas, um, you know, so Germany, post-Christian areas, Scotland, hard places, places that need ministry, guys, let me, let me, hear me say that, okay? Hard places, places that need ministry, they need the gospel. But they have access. That leaves 3%, 3% of the 400,000 missionaries worldwide Go to places that have no churches no access to the gospel. So if we think in terms of allocation of resources, there is a huge imbalance. There is a huge imbalance. And so when I was when I was first being wrestling with this stuff, that was one of the things that drove me. I was like, well, how do I? I'm, I'm a very logical thinker, I'm not very emotional when I make decisions. Okay. You can probably tell by the way I'm presenting this so far. that. <clears throat> I looked, at the, I looked at my friends and I looked at people that were, that were willing to do something and they were all like wanting to go to places that were already reached. I'm like, man, we need to go to these places. There's a huge imbalance here. And, and, and we're, we as a church have a responsibility to take the gospel to all nations, which means nations that don't have the gospel yet. And so we need to be thinking about how we can strategically allocate our resources for this end. And that's what Paul did in his ministry. So when we think of so first, God is glorified when new nations come to know him. Secondly, the Great Commission, Great Commission is accomplished strategically when we go to the nations, go to new nations. And third, the exclusivity of the gospel makes going to the nations an urgent task. The exclusivity of the gospel makes going to the nations an urgent task. Look at how Paul Describes the kind of people that he's going to in verse 21. But as it is written, quotes from Isaiah 52, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Never been told, never heard. In Bakersfield, it's hard to imagine people like this, isn't it? We drive down the street, and on every other block, there's a church. There are hundreds of churches here in Bakersfield. Now, are all of them healthy? No. But many of them are true churches. Many of them are still true churches. Now, we might not recommend them, but that's fine. They're true churches. There's access to the gospel here. There are about 40, or 545.9 million evangelical Christians in the world today. There are evangelicals in just about every country if every Christian, hear, hear, me, hear me say it this way, if every Christian shared the gospel with every person they saw on a given day, so think about how many people you see on a given day just in normal life, not here at church. If you shared the gospel, every Christian in the world shared the gospel with every person they saw on a given day, there would still be almost three billion people in the world that didn't hear about the gospel, that didn't hear about the Lord Jesus. Why? because there are significant barriers to them. Language, geography, governments, make it very hard for these people to hear the gospel, if not impossible, without someone going to them. 3,000 languages in the world today are considered unengaged, which means there's not even a person, there's not even a missionary that's targeting them at this time. 3,000 whole languages, guys. People ask us, so the second language that you're gonna learn is like a dialect of your first language, right? No, it's a totally different language, not dialects. We're not talking about dialects, we're talking about totally different languages. Not, you can't understand the other person. That's what that means. So when I say gospel urgency, here's what I mean. It's understanding that these people, just like us, apart from Christ, stand condemned before a holy God. That they are not gonna go to hell and suffer because of ignorance of a God that they don't know. Romans 1 tells us that that through the things that have been made, and even in them, even inside of them, they know that there's a God that they're accountable to, but they take that God, they take the truth that they know about God, and they put it aside, and they suppress it in unrighteousness, and they exchange the true God for created things, idols. So they're not going to suffer for eternity because of a, because of ignorance of a God that they don't know, but because of rebellion against the God that they do know. It's understanding that the only hope that we or anyone else in the world has for salvation is, is Jesus' blood shed on the cross and his resurrection that announces victory over sin and death. So if you're sitting here and you have not trusted Christ, this is your only hope. It's the life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ his victory, his life, his death in your place. It's your only hope. It's their only hope. And so if we understand this, well, then Romans 10, how will they come to know him if they don't hear? How will they hear if they don't hear the word preached? And who's going to preach unless they're sent? Gospel urgency drives us to the nations. So the glory of God, a great commission strategy, and gospel urgency demand that we pursue frontier missions. It demands that we go to unreached people groups. Okay, so what does this mean practically? Really quick here. What does this mean practically? John Piper famously wrote that you are either a sender or you're a goer when it comes to frontier missions. There is no other category. You're either a sender or a goer, or you're disobedient. And so first, I want to talk to those that could be potential goers. If you're under the age of 40, <clears throat> I know Mark said um, 99 or 100 the other week. Specifically for this type of work, we're going to have to learn two different languages. It's recommended that you be under 40, because there's, there's limitations on the human body. And limitations on our minds and how we can handle languages and all those things, right? So if you're under 40, you should seriously consider whether you should go for the sake of planting a church amongst an unreached people group. Think about how you're using your life and your resources, the gifts that God has given you, and wrestle with this question. And if you're sitting there and you're listening to this, you might be thinking of all these different reasons why you shouldn't go. And I've heard many of them over the years, and they're real reasons. So I don't want to minimize them, but I want to address them here. First reason that I've heard um, several times throughout the years is I just don't think I'm called to that. That's great, James. I realize that. I understand. I'm grateful for you. I'm glad that you're going, but I'm just not called to that. My first question and response is, well, how, what do you mean by called? How do you know I was called in the way that you're talking about that? What do you mean by called? And what I've found is that people are... Are looking for some type of subjective experience, some type of feeling burning in their bosom, message in this message in the sky, for them to hang their hat on, like that's God calling me. Let me tell you this, guys. I don't know a single missionary overseas that's planted a church that lost that, that that didn't lose that feeling in their heart, that struggled with feeling like getting up and sharing the gospel that day or learning language. But you know what all of them do? They, hang, they do what Paul does in this text here. They hang their hat on a biblical conviction. Why am I here? Why am I here? Look at verse 21 again. Paul gives a foundation for why he's doing what he's doing. And what does he say? Verse 21. But as it is written. If anybody give a subjective call to missions, it's Paul. He was literally knocked off, knocked off a horse and blinded by Jesus and told, this guy is going to be my, my apostle to the Gentiles. In Acts 16, when he's deciding where to go next and he's trying to get into Asia and, and, and God prevents him to go in there, from going there, he turns him around and he says, he gives him a vision to go to Macedonia. And so, God go, and so Paul goes to Macedonia. If anybody could have pointed to a a subjective call, it was Paul, but he doesn't do it here. He points to biblical prophecy, a biblical conviction that he is right smack dab in the middle of God's will. Because he lines up with what what God prophesied in Isaiah 52. And so, you may not be called to that. But let's start with a biblical understanding of what calling is. Biblical conviction, gifting, opportunity, and affirmation by the church. Let me tell you when you know for sure that you're not called. When the church says no, don't go. You should stay here. That's how you know you're not called. That's not something that you determine basically by yourself, necessarily. So you should do that with counsel. Second, <clears throat> second one I've heard a lot is, I'm involved in fruitful ministry here. So I don't want to leave that. I, I'm involved in fr- fruitful ministry here. Think about this for a second, though. Paul and Barnabas were both faithful leaders in the church of Antioch before they were called to go, to go to the Gentiles. In Acts 13, when they were called on to go, there were five leaders of the church of Antioch, and, and God singles out two of them and tells the church to, to send them. So Paul and Barnabas were involved in in fruitful ministry where they were at. There's a missionary named John Payton um, who went to the New Hebrides in the South Pacific. Before that, he worked in in Scotland, had a very successful ministry there working among young, young adults. Everyone thought he was crazy for leaving this wildly successful ministry to go to a place where there's so much unknown. But he was driven by biblical conviction that these people who did not know Christ needed to know Christ and that God was worthy of being glorified there. So might I suggest this, that fruitful ministry here is actually a great reason why you should go. It's actually a great reason why you should go. We wanna send our best overseas, not the people we could do without. And don't hear me say that there are people here that we can do without. You know what I mean. It probably hurt the church in Antioch to see Paul and Barnabas go. We know it did. But the glory of God where he has not yet worshipped, demands it. Demands it. Third, what if it's not safe? John Payton faced lots of opposition, yes, because he was leaving a successful ministry, but he also faced a lot of opposition for where he was going because just a few years before going there, there had been a couple of missionaries that were killed and eaten by the people there. So in a discussion about the dangers of going to the New Hebrides, a Mr. Dixon exploded The cannibals, you'll be eaten by cannibals, to which Peyton responded, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, of my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. We need to have a biblical view of suffering. Suffering is not just something that happens alongside sharing the gospel and and ministry. It is often the means by which the gospel goes forth. So we need to have a biblical understanding of suffering. We do not let safety as Christians drive our decision-making. Don't hear me say, be foolish. Use biblical wisdom. But biblical wisdom weighs out safety and strategy and all of these things in the glory of God, and then you make a decision. But it, safety does not drive. Safety does not drive. We don't live for this life, we live for the next life, which is secure in Christ. That's, that's what John Payton is saying here, talking about the resurrection body. Therefore, we must put safety and suffering in its proper place right beneath the feet of Jesus. Last one here. I'm very close to my family, and I can't stand the thought. (sighs) Sorry, guys. Uh, Take a second here. And my time's rehearsing this. I didn't do this. I'm very close to my family, and I can't stand the thought of being away from them <clears throat> for that long. We feel that. In a Q&A last week uh, that Kate and I did, we were asked, what's your biggest challenge that you anticipate in the near future? And uh, <clears throat> sorry, guys. Kate's answer had almost nothing to do with where we're going. It had nothing to do with where we're going. And it had everything to do with what's here and what we're leaving behind. But is Christ not worth sacrifice? Is the glory of God not worth leaving comfort and security? Jesus said that if anyone would come after me, I bid him come and die. In John 12, 23, he says this, "The uh, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. There's great comfort in this because there's no better place to be than right behind, right behind your Savior. The gospel gives us the motivation to take the gospel to those who will die without it. It gives us the motivation because we have urgency in the gospel that people are dying without hearing about Christ. But the gospel also gives us grace to accomplish the task as we focus on the one who sacrificed more than any of us could, who knows exactly what we're going through and who rose in victory over those things and gives us a resurrection body that he promises us. So we don't, we, if we lose sight of the gospel, we lose sight of all of that grace. The gospel gives us the motivation. It gives us the grace in the midst of the, in the midst of the battle. If you're not gonna go, this is for you, if you're not gonna go, then find tangible ways to partner with those who are. Then find tangible ways to partner with those who are. Pray fervently for cross-cultural workers. Pray for countries that are hostile to Christianity and for people groups that are considered unreached. If you guys are looking for resources for this, where do, how do I know where the, who these people are? Joshua Project, write that down. Joshua Project is a great resource for knowing who these unreached peoples are. Operation World is another great resource for knowing how to pray for these people and how to pray for these countries that they live in. Give generously to the church and to individuals to this end. The church can do more mission if we have more resources. It's one of the reasons why we're talking through like whether or not we're gonna build more if we're gonna send people to plant a church because it takes resources to do that. So give generously to the church so that the church has the bandwidth, has the, has the resources to, to send And lastly, mobilize to this end. Mobilize. Some of you are sitting here and you know that you're either not physically able or you're older than, you're 41 and you don't have the capacity to pursue frontier missions. Don't hold back because I know that you know that there are people sitting in this room that you're thinking about right now. Don't hold back from calling on potential candidates to think about going, to think about doing something very hard and uncomfortable. Don't hold back. That's what the church does. That's what the church does. We pray for workers. We pray that God would provide laborers. We pray for people to be raised up. Well, how do they get raised up? This has become a part of our culture at our church. We're calling on each other to, hey, man, you should, you're really gifted in this area. You're a great teacher. You should consider doing this. I'll, cl- I'll close with a, another quote from John Piper in his book, Don't Waste Your Life. <clears throat> he says this, I am wired by nature to love the same toys that the world loves. I start to fit in. I start to love what others love. I start to call earth home. Before you know it, I'm calling luxuries needs and using my money just the way unbelievers believers do. I begin to forget the war. I don't think much about people perishing. Missions and unreached people drop out of my mind. I start dreaming about triumphs. I stop dreaming about triumphs of grace. I sink into a secular mindset that looks first to what man can do, not what God can do. It's a terrible sickness. And I thank God for those who have forced me again and again toward a wartime mindset. So let us take on a wartime mindset as we've worked to fulfill the Great Commission together for the glory of God, with strategy, and gospel urgency. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the privilege of knowing you, the privilege that we have in the gospel of knowing your son who came for us, who lived for us, who loved us and died on the cross for us, who was buried and rose from the grave victoriously for us, who ascends for us. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us to live in light of the gospel. Help us to move. Help us to be a church that takes missions to unreached people groups seriously. That it would become a part of our heartbeat. It's one of the reasons why we exist. Lord, I pray that you would raise up laborers for the harvest. Because they are indeed plentiful. I pray for people that are in here that that are gifted, I pray for people in here that are willing, and I pray that you would make us all willing to play a a serious role in seeing the nations reached for you, because you are worth it. The sacrifice is worth it, and there is great reward on the other side. Please help us to live life in light of eternity and to pursue these things for you. In Jesus' name, amen.